0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. Today we are speaking with Dr. Alexis Wells Ogogame about her book *The Souls of Womenfolk: The Religious Cultures of Enslaved Women in the Lower South*, from the University of North Carolina Press. How are you doing today, Dr. Wells Ogogame?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I am just living the dream. I loved your book, and I'm really excited to speak with you about it. And I'm curious, when did when did you first recognize that a need for a study? of enslaved women's religious lives would be feasible for a dissertation and a book project.
1: Right. I I don't know if I knew it was going to be feasible, but I knew I wanted to do it. (laughs) Um, So I came into my PhD program uh, wanting to work on post-1980s Black women in hip hop and sexuality. And so I found that I had to keep going further and further back to access some of these questions I was asking about, you know, sexuality and race and gender and how they all intersected. And I stumbled upon um, a class on slavery. And so I was pushed by my advisor to pursue this further. And I ended up meeting Leslie Harris in the process, a wonderful slavery historian who took me under her wing. And I just fell in love with the time period Um, And so as I got deeper into thinking about uh, the intersection of religion and slavery, I noticed that there was not a lot of attention to gender. Um, And so in slavery studies, uh, uh, it is sort of a given that slavery is highly gendered. Ever since uh, Deborah Gray White published Aren't I a Woman? uh, There has been this wonderful lineage of literature exploring the gendered experiences of Bonds people in America, particularly women. So I imagine my surprise when I get into that field and I find not only do they not really delve very deeply into religion in slavery studies, but uh, in religious studies, we did not, we were not really being very attentive to gender as we did uh, thought about slavery and religion. So that's where I saw saw the need. Um, I was interested in it. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew it needed to be done. So uh, that's how we arrived there. And I just, I had a wonderful uh, team and committee behind me who helped me realize that dream.
0: Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I found really helpful is that you define your terms really well in the introduction and you use dis slash memberment, meaning dismemberment or memberment. What do you mean by, uh, by that term?
1: Yeah. So I was trying to figure out a way to make sure that we kept the material conditions of enslaved people front and center as we thought about religion. Religion is highly embodied. And though those of us who study religion realize that. I think sometimes it's very easy to untether people's thoughts from what they're doing on the ground, from their everyday context. And so I was trying to find a way methodologically and theoretically to uh, ensure that the traumas of everyday life of the mundane for enslaved women were always at the fore of the reader's mind as we encountered what they considered religion or religious. Because for me, I'm using a very expansive definition of religion. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm trying to prioritize how the women themselves oriented themselves uh, in in their context, in their worlds. Um, And so dismemberment is intended to think about both inherited traumas, so things like um, dislocation from West and West Central Africa, the transatlantic slave trade, um, the experience of sale. Uh, as well as everyday traumas, things like sexual assault, things like the loss of parental rights, Um, because all these together converge to create this experience of enslavement. And this experience is really unlike many other experiences, most other experiences, I would argue, in human history, because it is so mired in ancestral and familial histories um, and so I wanted that sense of being enmeshed to be a part of the project, as well as the material conditions uh, to be front and center. So I created dismemberment to think about all of these these uh, different moments and uh, experiences where people um, experience fragmentation in some ways. They eat, whether it's actual geographical, you know, fragmentation being pulled away from your your family. Um, or if it's it's psychological or emotional or social. So that's where the term dismemberment came from.
0: Thanks for sharing that. It really brings to mind that, that visceral reality, as you say, that uh, really slavery is about tearing people apart as much as it is bringing people together for labor. And I was curious, so in the title... You focus on women in the Lower South, but a lot of your records come from Georgia. So why the focus on Georgia?
1: Yeah, so Georgia is understudied, obviously. Um, usually, if we're going to be in the Lower South, we're in South Carolina. Uh, and I love South Carolina. I always say it's like the squeaky wheel state. You know, everything that happens, it kind of starts in South Carolina. You start the Civil War in South Carolina. Um Uh, Charleston is is the number one port into which enslaved people from West and West Central Africa came. Um, So Charleston and and South Carolina are central to the story, but Georgia is is right there alongside South Carolina. A lot of the uh, slaveholders who uh, started out in South Carolina end up moving to Georgia. Um, A lot of slaveholders from Barbados and the the, uh, British Caribbean end up in Georgia as well. So Georgia and South Carolina really are these kind of, they're paired. They're paired uh, just kind of like Maryland and Virginia. Um, it, you have the Chesapeake. And then when we talk about the lower South, you can't include my home state of Florida, but of course, Florida was not a part of the Anglophone British world for a while. And even once it became so, it really was not, it never fully got got over its Spanish lineage. So um, Florida is usually left out of that equation. So I, I chose to focus on Georgia just because it's understudied. It's a great case study for the lower South because of that, for that reason, it has a lot of those same features as, as South Carolina. Um, but also it has these features of, of slavery throughout the U S so when we think about slavery in the U S we usually kind of tell these big narratives. We think about the slave trade, uh, itself. Savannah is a port into which people come as well, but also a lot of people from Charleston who are coming in through Charleston end up being sold down into Georgia. Um, And people from the Caribbean are also coming into Georgia and Charleston at a, even a higher rate than those from West and West Central Africa. But it also has that um, that rice culture that we like to think about when we think about early plantation slavery. It's Georgia and South Carolina have that heavy rice culture. And then we move from rice to cotton when we get after, uh, in the post-revolutionary war period. Um, and so Georgia has that same pattern of Big grandees from the Caribbean growing rice on the coast and then smaller um, farmers coming in and with fewer enslaved people, but more farms um, populating the upcountry. And then with cotton, slavery is being democratized, which means more people can buy an enslaved person to farm cotton because you don't need as many people to farm cotton as you need to farm uh, rice. And so uh, that westward movement of slavery happens because of cotton. And a lot of Georgia slaveholders end up start starting doing that push west. They're pushing the Cherokee out through, uh, of course, swindling and mass and violence. Um, and so with that westward movement of, of white settlers, you have um, the dislocation of Native Americans, and you have the opening up of the West for cotton and slavery. And so Georgia was just a really great, it just sits right in the the center of a lot of this um, as one of those uh, old plantation states that show a lot of these patterns that we think about when we think about the American South and slavery.
0: Thanks for sharing that. One sort of big picture, one more big picture question before we begin, you use the Works Progress Administration or WPA narratives from the enslaved that were recorded in the 1930s. And when these were first discovered, historians were thrilled to have them. But then there was some pushback about, oh, they're speaking with white people. There Mm -hmm. are certain power dynamics or racial dynamics that we don't capture. So how do you use the narratives in a way that's both academically responsible, but also allows you to use the voices and words of the enslaved and formerly enslaved?
1: Right, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, the WPA narratives have been somewhat contentious in terms of historians, um, and and the the concerns are well founded. So I do want to foreground uh, by saying that I think for me, when we're trying to access the voices and experiences of marginalized people, when they're speaking, you got to listen. It's just, it's very basic for me. I don't care what circumstance in in which they're speaking because they found a way to tell us what was happening. Even when you look at narratives uh, that aren't the WPA narrative, So for instance, when you look at one of my my all-time favorites is um, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Linda Brent, also known as Harriet Jacobs, um, you see that she's having to to abide by those nineteenth century conventions, uh, uh, and she's not at liberty to just say everything she wants. But she manages to say a lot, even with a heavily mediated um, sort of publishing world uh, circulating around her or supporting her work. And so, I think being mindful of that, because when you're a member of a marginalized group, you're never at liberty just to say what you want. Um, And and I don't care what the context is, but using those sources uh, responsibly means being attentive and and making readers aware of the context in which um, people were speaking, but also uh, finding a way as a historian to hear what, what the subjects are trying to convey. And they convey a lot there. And despite Uh, who they're speaking to, they manage to tell us a lot about slavery. And in the case of enslaved women, this is one of the only places we get their voices. Um, And so if we're going to do work on enslaved women, we have to contend with uh, the WPA narrative. So um, I I basically, um, in the book, talk about oral history and the importance of orality, uh, because there are also questions about memory when it comes to the WPA narratives. But my pushback on that is we're 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 talking about people who are not literate um, in terms of the written word, but come from a lot, many of them come from cultures. Now, not all, but many where orality is central and memory functions differently. Memory is about a collective remembering, people thinking about things in in community and building upon them and and utilizing them for specific purposes, for specific moments. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to remember that just because we as historians have conceptualized memory does not mean that our subjects understand what they're doing in the same way. So even when we're looking at a source like a diary, a very traditional historical source we have to be aware that how people are recording their so-called memories is not just in this linear fashion. We have to really contend with how they might understand memory, what its purpose is, and how that might influence what they're being, they're recording. Um, so I'm just making uh, historians and, you know, I'm just, I'm making that case um, for the WPA narratives.
0: Thanks so much for sharing that. That's very helpful. Diving into the first chapter, you note know that enslaved women apprehended the meanings of their enslavement through the paradigm of gender prior to their comprehension of race. Could you explain for listeners what you mean by that?
1: Sure. Um, So in West and West Central Africa, slavery uh, predated the transatlantic slave trade and encounters with Western Europeans. Now, I I say that with um, an asterisk because, of course, it's going to be exacerbated and grow in scale. And violence with the um, introduction of the transatlantic slave trade, particularly in the 18th century, uh, when you have the Americas really becoming dependent upon uh, African labor, in particular, um, and, and not just African African descended people's labor. That's when West and West Central African slave trade is is really going to become a, a create a really precarious environment for a lot of people. Um, but because it predated the transatlantic slave trade, a lot of people would have already had some awareness of what slavery was, even if they would, were not in any danger of ever being enslaved. Now, with the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade, there are a couple, it's, it, I always say it's a perfect storm of things that happen because West, Western Europeans want males in particular. Uh, West Africans and people in the Trans-Saharan trade want females in particular. And so as you have these neighboring polities and these these bigger polities who become dependent upon uh, capturing and selling uh, peoples for the growth of their own economies, you're gonna have all these trades getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which means more women are gonna enter into the trade as are more males. Um, and But because women are more popular in these other two trades, they're going to be more aware of their uh, precariousness. Uh, They know that if, if there is ever a war, they're likely to be captured and sold into slavery. Even if that capture means I have to, I become one of the enslaved wives, and I put that in scare quotes, uh, uh, the so-called wives of my enslaver. Um, you, these women are still providing reproductive labor as well as agricultural labor for whomever owns them. So in those configurations, the children would enter into the um, <clears throat> the kind of kinship group of the slaveholder. But the woman always remained an outsider because she had been removed from her own kinspeople. Uh, So that meant that she was never fully integrated or very rarely fully integrated. I should say never, but very rarely um, integrated into whatever society in which she was enslaved. And so when people are encountering transatlantic slavery for the first time, they're usually being captured um, by someone in a neighboring polity or a, or a roving group of mercenaries um and so they're experiencing it first just as slavery and because slavery is highly gendered in their context that is how they're going to read their experience uh, experience first that's how that is the lens through which they will understand what's happening to them because Many people, unless they lived on the coast, would not necessarily have seen a Western European person um, because Western Europeans were almost wholly concentrated on the coast. And so until you got to the coast, they were not a factor. And even once you got to the coast, you still could be sold to um, one of the... the, the, the groups that uh, owned these big plantations on the coast and off the coast of Western Africa. So there are lots of different people who were players in the slave trade. Western Europeans were just one of them. Um, and so uh, their, their race for many of the people who were experiencing this would have not been the first thing they thought about because it was not, it, they had, it was not a paradigm through which they lived their lives.
0: Thanks. That's very helpful to help us understand. And as you mentioned, the labor that West African women performed in West Africa, how did their labor change as they, came, as they were uh, taken captive to Georgia uh, or other locations in the rural South?
1: Yeah, so I would argue that the labor, the, the kind of labor that they performed became much more, uh, what's the word? I shouldn't say much more. It it was a different kind of viciousness um, because their labor could no longer change their status in society or the status of their children. That would be that would be kind of the, a primary difference. Certainly the agricult- the level of agricultural labor uh, that they they um, uh, performed in the Americas, many people argue, was just far harsher, longer hours um, just it was just the burden was much heavier than what they would have done in West and West Central Africa. And I would agree with that because in what in many parts of West and West Central Africa, you were just providing labor to to support the community. You were not providing labor to support a global economy. You were not producing big mass goods to, to go across oceans. And that's what they started to do once they were in uh, the South or the American South or the Americas, because it was happening, obviously, all over. And then also the sexual labor. So sexual labor was a part of all of these trades. So, uh, you know, I always like to keep that first and foremost, especially for those who say, oh, West African slavery was somehow better. And I think, you know, nobody wants to be enslaved. So let's just start there. Let's not rank types of enslavement. <laughs> let's just, uh, you know, honor the fact that human dignity mandates freedom. Um but when we when we push beyond that and and think about what people were doing in terms of sexual labor, again, like I said um, before, if she produced a child, that child had the there was a possibility of that child being integrated into the society. Interestingly enough, and something I talk about in the book is if uh, for certain a certain class of women who were providing sexual and and cultural labor to Western Europeans. They made sure in these these contracts that their children inherited actual goods and that an actual capital. The, these children got access to education, and so a lot of times in West Africa, especially if you were a woman of of a high class and you chose to do, you know, I don't know, some women had a choice, a lot of women didn't. But if you engaged in this, um, you can make sure that your children were well provided for for many generations, and. A lot of women managed to build wealth that way. Obviously, that was not the case in in the South. So um, that's how the labor changed. You, it didn't matter how many children you produced in the South, and with whom it could be with the slaveholder. Slaveholders were under no obligation to pr- provide for their children, and most of them didn't. Um, and they used their children as laborers. And so that was a a radical change from West and West Central Africa where. Children meant something. Having a child with someone meant something, and in a lot of cultures, there were um, it, it obligated you in certain ways, and there were a number of groups, polities that obligated uh, Western Europeans and other foreigners to provide for their children if they had them with women there.
0: Now, labor wasn't the only thing that changed as uh, as African women were brought captive to the United States and throughout the Americas. You note also that their religion changed, but something that I think you say, or something that you say that I think is really profound, and can be explored further, is that the West African practices and religion are, they don't totally disappear, they're grafted, or Christianity is grafted onto those practices. What are some of the beliefs or practices um, that you point to in the book that Christianity is grafted onto?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, you know, I, in the book, in terms of Christianity, I think about power, sound, sociality, and movement. Those are the four things I think about because, um, in that particular chapter, what I'm trying to do is speak back to the historiography, which has overwhelmingly thought about enslaved religiosity in terms of Afro- Afro-Catholicism really is is not oftentimes contended with. You have people like Emily Clark who have done it, um, thinking about women religious. But for the most part, you know, we think about Afro-Protestantism because of the legacy of fantastic books like Dr. Raboteau's Slave Religion, uh, Margaret Washington's uh, A Peculiar People. Um, You know, there are others... um, Uh, Janet Cornelius there, you know, who have written these really fabulous books thinking about Afro-Protestantism. But I think about it in these ways because my contention is that, you know, cosmology doesn't change. People come in when we encounter new situations, we're synthesizing and understanding them through the prism of our previous understandings. And Cosmology is not something you can just dismantle. You know, you you're the way you orient yourself in the world is usually, you know, unless you have some really mind blowing experience, you don't really radically change how you see the world very often. Um, and so, uh, certainly, these experiences of dismemberment, those experiences of dislocation and and sale and and all those tra- traumas that I talk about in the book. Uh, were reorienting experiences that required them to create different religious configurations, they still saw the world using these big frameworks that are born out of West and West Central African uh, religious epistemologies. And so power is going to be very important because you know, religions are only productive and important in as much as they give you access to power that you do not have in your, yourself. And I would contend that m- many religions are about power, even if it's about self-empowerment. I mean, it's still about power, accessing power. Um, and so Uh, power is going to be something that they coming out of West and West Central Africa, they already understand. And when you are looking at these people who are enslaving you and you see that they have these crosses and you see that they talk about this person called Jesus, and you think to yourself, is this who is allowing you to do this to me? Because this must be a really powerful deity, um, so then I'm going to find this Jesus person and I'm going to try to you know, be a supplicant as well to see what Jesus can do for me. Um, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, I'll be honest. That's what a lot of people, a lot of the logics, I, it sounds very foreign when I say it that way, but a lot of the logic of conversion is about power. And a lot of the rhetoric around religiosity is about what a deity, the power of a deity or deities. Or the power of a community uh, or the power of your own mind. You know, there are lots of ways you can think about that. Um, and so that's how they're looking. You know, when you think about Christianity, just in that one instance, um, but not just that, sociality, Christianity is the hegemonic religions, the dominant religion in the South. So, you know, that this is, if there are spaces where they can gather um, the religious spaces, Christian spaces, are the only ones that are available, and so uh, they use these spaces as opportunities to do lots of things. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book that I love, they use it to court, because they don't get to go anywhere, you know. And we're talking about a people who are essentially in prison. They're in. They live their lives. Their children live their lives. Their their grand, their parents, their grandparents live their lives in a prison, um, and a prison that is torturous and violent and that can kill them and nobody, nothing happens. And so when you have an opportunity, even for a moment to get out and to do and understand yourself as something other than a prisoner, then that's what you do. And so they, they use these Christian spaces as an opportunity to go and see other people, to form friendships, very basic human fundamental things that they had, they did weren't at liberty to do on a regular, they could do it if they were on big plantations. Um, but a lot of them, you know, there were a lot of people who were, were not on plant, who were isolated, you know, they, even if they were on big plantations, didn't mean they necessarily had social time. Um, so there are lots of things like that, m- that make me say that, you know, Christianity met a need because it was the dominant religion of the South. And it had these features that that satisfied some of the needs that um, bonds people had.
0: Thanks for sharing that. And I think that what you said is really profound about conversion, about religious experience being about power, but self-empowerment especially, right? People don't tend to practice religions that don't work for them on some level. And right. in thinking about enslaved women and their religion, you also write about womb ethics. And I'm wondering if you could define womb ethics for us, but also speak to the existentially important questions that enslaved women had to consider when they were pregnant or after their children were born.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So womb ethics are ethical, uh, modes of ethical reasoning that are governed by maternity. Um, And so one of the claims I make in the book is that Uh, women had this third consciousness. So, you know, they had their awareness of themselves as individuals. And this is, you know, uh, this is expanding upon the Du Du Boisian double consciousness, which has been so productive for many people for a long time. And it's brilliant. Let me just be, you know, it's brilliant. That's why it's so productive. Um, But, you, you know, the experience of self the experience of self through the the gaze of the other, you know, through the gaze of the the oppressor, the gaze of your captor. So how people were reading them as black, reading, well, first as African, then as Negro, then as black and then as uh, female and woman and all the things that attended to that, that was counter to or imposed upon them. And then the third way, the third consciousness is that um is the the consciousness born of having to not only think about yourself, but think about the humanity of another? Um, because enslaved women were responsible for uh, the the childbearing and childrearing; it all fell on them, um, and it, it's it was not it was by design. So it was not a choice that most enslaved families had many times fathers were not allowed to, to even live, even if they were on the same plantation, they couldn't live with their partners or their children. And even when they did, sometimes they did such vastly different things that, you know, you didn't have time to see each other. Um, and so the third consciousness is, is sort of what, what guides womb ethics because women are having to make decisions about um uh, make decide what is good or just or right for them um, based on what is good and just, what what will ensure not only their survival, but the survival of their children uh, and quality of life, a better quality of life and survival and quality of life. That paradigm comes from uh, Dr. Dolores Williams, the great womanist theologian who absolutely changed my life with her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, when I read it when I was doing my master's degree. Um, And it's absolutely brilliant because it prioritizes survival, which is when a people are enslaved, you can't think beyond. It's hard to think beyond the next day. It's hard to think. If you don't know if your children will be there the next day, if you don't know if... You will be alive the next day. You have a different reality, uh, a different way of governing yourself, a different way of thinking about what is right and wrong, Um, you know, because you have to you have to make it, you know, and sometimes it's my children have to make it. And so women did things like, uh, you know, that they sometimes they they made the decision to have these sexual relationships with people who had power. And they, and you know, the question becomes, did they have a choice? And and that's just the, the the rhetorical question that always hangs over the head when we think about enslaved, our heads, when we think about enslaved women, because certainly they could have not done it, but if the not doing it meant the difference between your your child, maybe being able to stay by your side and you could raise them versus not, that's a, that, what kind of choice is that, you know? Um, so um So those are the kinds of things I think about when I'm thinking about womb ethics. I think about filicide. Uh, I think about abortion because I think when we are situating ourselves in the realities of slavery, what it means to survive and thrive is completely altered. And for some women, when we think about filicide and abortion, thriving for their children meant them never existing in slavery. Um, and, and one of the, the, you know, I'll end here thinking about this. I, I always talk about this one woman because I remember reading it thinking, wow. Um, and I think I, it's definitely in the book, this one woman who talks about how she killed all 13 of her children with all, her bare hands. And she's an elderly woman when she's saying this because she did not want them to be slaves. And I mean, that's a, and that's a different way of functioning. It's a different reality. And it's one that I, I wanted us to contend with because this is a reality born of the, the knowledge that I, my body and my sexual relationships are being used to power a system that will kill my children and that will ultimately kill me. It's a different way of thinking and having to exist and breathe. Um, so um, yeah, womb ethics is, is very near and dear to my heart because it's really, it's it's a it's a great illustration of all that I'm trying to, to accomplish when I center uh, the, the, pro- centered the project around the lives and experiences of enslaved women.
0: Well, and also centering the power that enslaved women had, thinking about the different choices of agency that they have. They're not always the choices that, um, that maybe they wish they had, but they did have some power and authority to, uh, to make choices in their lives. Uh, Again, we're speaking with Alexis Wells of Ogamay about her book, The Souls of Women Folk, The Religious Cultures of Enslaved Women in the Lower South. And moving forward another chapter, I was fascinated by your analysis of birth and postpartum rituals. How did you research these rituals and what helped you to realize how important they were and are in the lives of enslaved and just of women of African descent?
1: Yeah. Uh, So Birth is a really big deal in West and West Central African cultures. Um, You know, and one of the things that made me research is is because I was thinking about rites of passage. um, And because obviously the book is thinking about these big religious studies categories and rituals, a big one uh, and religious studies and rites of passage are big in West and West Central African epistemological systems. So it started there. um, And, womanhood coming with the birth of the first child or womanhood coming with the authorization to give birth, you know? Um, so when I think about the culture around midwifery and, um, I think about Sunday and the Sunday initiatory society, um, you know, they are, they are turning girls into those who may procreate. That's, that's how the language. Um, and so, Birth and and maternity are really central to West and West Central African cultures, but the argument has been made about American slavery, that because they experienced such high infant mortality rates, that women did not understand birth in the same way. Um, And I... I sort of took issue with that. I mean, I didn't, you know, I I think there are some, that is true on the, in a general sense, but I didn't wholly agree that they did not catalog the grief that they felt when their children did not make it. Um, Because one of the things I I talk about are these litanies to the dead, as I call them, where they always remember the children they've lost. Um, And so, when it came to postpartum rituals, I started noticing a lot of these rituals fall under the, the broader rubric of conjure uh, in, in African-American religious uh, studies. It's We think about conjure, like it's this big category of this, you know, collection of disparate practices and ideas that just, they don't fit anywhere else. So they get dumped into this wonderful reposit- repository called conjure. Of course, Yvonne Chirot wrote the wonderful book, Black Magic, um, on uh, a a number, on this phenomenon and these practices. Um, And so I just started noticing there were a lot of people, especially in the WPA narratives, who talked about rights around birthing. Um, And I I think for me, it spoke to an awareness of the precariousness of birth um, and the difficulties surrounding children's enslaved children surviving. Most of them did not make it to their fifth birthday. Um, the vast majority of deaths among enslaved people were children. So, um, and I usually, I do that, uh, and but to the extent that we can track that, let me say that, to the extent that we can track, it's very difficult to track um, infant mortality because people, someone had to record it, and people had to know what was happening to record it. Um, so this is where I got interested in postpartum rituals, and I started noticing that there were a number of them. Uh, there were there were rites designed to ensure that the children made it, which I think is a, a an amazing testament to that survival mentality, um, in spite of the ugliness of slavery. And I always go back to even though. Um, I think I come I I do quote Linda Brandt, aka Harriet Jacobs at some point in there because again she is my I would say she is my holy grail of of commentators because I just think she expresses the paradox of enslaved femaledom so beautifully um but she talks about when she she had her first child how she she was so ambivalent about giving birth to this child. And when when she gave birth to him, he was sick. And, um, you know, and then she said, I went from, you know, kind of not wanting my child to survive to wholeheartedly saying, you know, and she said, I went from not just my child, not wanting me not wanting to live, you know, I went from not wanting to live to when I saw this child and, and his struggle for life, you know, it, it it completely changed everything, and she titles that that chapter a a new title, a tie to life or a new of life. I mean, she, I love it because it so beautifully conveys the the, the paradox, um, and and those postpartum rituals do the same thing for me. So that's how I got invested in postpartum rituals. I'm arguing that birth is going to be a, a very important thing for a lot of enslaved women. Primarily because they're coming out of a context in which birth is important, but just because birth is important doesn't mean that maternal controls aren't equally important uh, as important. And so these rituals are a part of their their um, repertoire of of controls and ways that they um, they endeavored to to create some certainty around the uncertain situation of of life in slavery.
0: Yeah, that chapter was particularly uh, both affective and effective in helping readers to see the stakes that were there for enslaved African women. And one of the things that you argue in your last chapter in in a related way is that church was often a site of discipline and not liberation. And how does that change the way that historians and religious study scholars should understand the religious lives of the enslaved?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm glad you picked up. <laughs> Looks like that that worked, huh? <laughs> um, yeah. So um, that's again, going back to uh, almost back to your, your first question about the material context. Um, you know, I remember hearing people love and, you know, you know, religious studies. People love to talk about the slavery era in these ways of, oh, wow, they were striving, you know, against all odds. They they managed to create this beautiful Christianity that is that is, you know, as that is uh, stalwart and and strong and liberationist. And I always thought, when did they have the time to do this? You know, I <laughs> as a slavery historian, I thought, wow, so you tell me, you mean to tell me after working 12 hour days, you know, for six days out of the week on the only day you have to sleep, to wash clothes, to do hair, to, to cook food, to do everything you have to do for yourself and for your children, you're going to choose to go and, you know, spend your whole day at church. Um, And so, you know, that was the kind of first question, um, and, and, you know, when I thought, when I started looking at the sources, I noticed that church had all these disciplinary features. One of the things, reasons why we have so many sources on Afro-Protestantism or about Afro-Protestantism, because it was a highly surveilled space. Uh, there were always slaveholders and overseers and all of these people around watching them. And... So we have lots of great sources telling us what's going on in these spaces. But but again, going back to the question about the WPA, why do we assume that we know what's actually going on? Because these commentators are telling us what's going on. Um, And so... That is one of the, that was sort of my entry point into thinking about uh, Afro-Christianity and slavery, because I, again, if we're going to keep them, if we're going to be honest and serious about the material conditions in which enslaved people found themselves, then we need to ask different questions about why they're there. Are they being compelled to be there? Or again, going back to uh, your earlier question, is there something there that they, they, that excites them? And I would argue sociality excites them that's the one thing we see them over and over again, risking their punishment to do. They they sneak out to go, uh, Stephanie Camp's work, to go to frolics. They sneak out to go to uh, Bible studies. They sneak out to go and meet one another, you know, uh, and, you know, to to hang out. They sneak out to go and, you know, engage in romantic and sexual relationships. These are why people sneak out. And so why do we assume that they are going you know, or why they leave and why they sacrifice so much so there has to be something pleasurable happening happening there and so that's where where i um you know where i started with with thinking about afro christianity and slavery i think we have to start with the experience of enslaved people and not the experiences of post emancipation african americans in the in the south or in or even pre emancipation African-Americans in the Northeast. Because when we start there, we're missing all of the materiality that made enslaved people's lives uh, unique in that this uh, religious landscape, and that completely altered what they needed from their religiosity. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it, it was a disciplinary space most often because they were hearing slaves obey your masters, et cetera, et cetera. And most of them you know, I always say I'm the descendant of an enslaved person and I'm just as intelligent as anybody else, which means I am i inherited this intelligence, which means that my enslaved ancestors were likely equally as intelligent as me, which means they saw through everything that they were being told. And most of them probably were like, forget it. I'm not doing that. Um, and so I think we just have to ask different questions about Afro-Christianity and slavery. It's still a factor. But I think uh, theologically, um, uh, we have to think about some other systems and how they were were interplaying with it.
0: Yeah. One final question on the book in particular: you speak about the Brush Arbor as a place outside of the eyes and ears of white surveillance. What sorts of religious practices did enslaved uh, women per What sorts of religious practices did captive women perform there?
1: Yeah. So the Brush Harbor, that, that's the question. I i would argue that they did a lot of things. I think they sang. Um, uh, they did uh, ring dances. Um, they told stories. Um, they I, I would argue that they exchanged information and gossip, uh, <laughs> you know, the kinds of stuff they do and they, people do now when they're in religious spaces. Um Uh, I I think it was a theological space, but I also like to always keep in the fore of our minds that we had Muslims, documented Muslims in the Lower South, um, and they were in these spaces as well. So I I think they were, um, if if we're thinking about the Abrahamic faith, Islam and Christianity in particular, they would be ecumenical. You know, these would be spaces that were polycultural is the term that I think people would like to use, you had a mix of West and West Central African, uh, Christian, Muslim, and then conjure and a whole lot of things happening in these spaces.
0: Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. And in reading your book, I see it as an outgrowth of many books in Africana and Africana religious studies. But the entire time, I couldn't help but think of uh, Dr. Al Raboteau's work. And how did his work influence yours?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It it can't, you know, I, I, it, his influence can't be overstated. Uh, Dr. Raboteau's book obviously was the first book I ever read on religion and slavery. Um, And prior to his book, we were not really contending with religion as a real phenomenon. I think mostly because religion is about interiority. And a lot of historians were hesitant to try to tackle the question of what they were doing, um, what were they doing, and what were they thinking about in these spaces. Uh, and Dr. Raboteau did that, and he did it for Afro Protestantism. And he showed us about he showed us how uh, bonds people in the South were building institutions prior to the the end of the civil war when you have the AME missionaries and and all these wonderful people coming in from the northeast and who are going to start building predominantly black um institutions. So, he taught us a lot about um, you know, I mean his 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 chapter on conversion and these thoughts on how enslaved people were choosing to navigate their humanity uh even amid this this totalizing brutal system, uh, was at the fore of what he was doing. And, and I, I always say, uh, in terms of Dr. Rabbitoh, he, he taught us to think about enslaved people as decision makers, as historical actors, as people who were doing things, not just having things done to them.
0: Thank you. And then one last question, uh, to finish out on what projects are you working on now that you have your first book out?
1: Yeah. So um, my project now is thinking about phenomena termed witchcraft. Um, And so that project grows out of an awareness that the historiography around um, American witchcraft really is very much centered in the Northeast. And it's also heavily concentrated around European descendant women. And after Salem, a lot of the literature, um, just drops off. It, it doesn't engage what's happening around. It's almost like witchcraft just disappears or anything called witchcraft disappears. And um, and of course we know that's not true. And, and this project was born of this really interesting moment for me when I was down in New Orleans and I was in, I think, Jackson Square. I, I remember I was somewhere where all these people were setting up these people were calling themselves as psychics or, you know, fortune tellers or whatever. Um, and I, I, we were there early and so we were, we saw them as they were setting up and there had to be about five of them. this kind of in a row and there was a, all of them except for one woman was black. The black woman had on this kind of head wrap and she had on a long flowing kind of African print, um, dress. And her line got so long, almost instantly. And I thought to myself, what is happening here? You know, these, this is histories of signifying it (laughs) that's happening right now. And she knew how to, she knew how to signal to people those histories. She did it with the African print. She did it with the head wrap. She did it with her black skin and her femaleness. Um, so she's profiting off of this. And I thought, what is, what is, what is this? So that is what the project is thinking about. It does not stretch into the 20th century, but, um, starting, I'm probably going to stay, I'm staying right for right now in my comfort zone. So 16th to 19th century, uh, but thinking about the ways that this category has been used to, um, to create these racialized gendered subjects, um, particularly in terms of, of black women. So black womanhood is being configured by this category, even though this category is supposedly no longer uh, this phenomenon is no no longer exists apparently after uh 1692. Um so that's what the, the this next project is thinking about. I'm thinking about it both in terms of what in, uh, women are doing, but also how they're using the category and the evolution of the category itself um, in terms of these racialized and gendered con- connotations. So the next project is equally big, um, and uh, but it's it's super exciting. I've been working on it. I've been thinking about it since grad school. Um, And so I'm really excited to finally be able to pivot and really dive into it.
0: Well, thank you for your time and sharing with us more about your research and teasing your future research. Again, the name of the book is The Souls of Women Folk, The Religious Cultures of Enslaved Women in the Lower South by Dr. Alexis Wells Ogogame. And there is a 40% off coupon from UNC Press, one dah H four zero. So Joseph Stewart from the New Books Network, we look forward to talking to you later.